Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. And uh, my name is Bron Burton. And I'm Farm. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Um, we're going to start today's program by acknowledging traditional owners of the land on which we are very privileged to be broadcasting, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. And uh, hello out there to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are listening. Today's program farm. This is our first time back in the studio. I know. Hello. It is so exciting to be here. <laughs> it's good to be Woo-hoo, back. It's I missed good to it. Be back. Yeah. And I, and I could tell you, you're really riding out that title song, the <laughs> intro. You're really riding it all out, taking it all in. I've missed it. <laughs> Anthony and Dr. Beach were in last week, but um, yeah, it's our first time back in. And um, big thanks to Tim Thorpe for uh, his weekend of Vital Bits. And uh, thank you to Andrew for Soulful Bits. Thank you to Steph for things to do today. You can catch Tim next weekend from 6 till 9. Why wouldn't you? Excellent early weekend listening every week. Yeah, and also happy International Girls and Women in Science Day. Woo! Yeah. Indeed. That's us. We're going to be acknowledging a few... Women on the world stage mm-hmm. advocating for climate change through the United Nations. So um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, happy day. Uh, all right, let's go through today's program. And look, as so often happens on Radio Marinara, we've discovered a theme which was not intended but just sort of emerged. And the theme for our show this week sort of seemed to be marine restoration. Um, so we're initially starting off with a phone call down to Geelong to speak with Platform Gallery CEO Ilona Russell about a new exhibition called Currents. And it actually opened yesterday. It's examining the reliance on and reverence of water. And it's basically using art as a call to arms to sort of push for collective conservation uh, and restore the marine yeah. environment. Yeah, amazing. And I saw that um, Oceans Labs has um, is taking part in that as well, which will be great because we'll be speaking to someone. That's true. I was having a look through the artist. I'm like, <laughs> oh, know that person? Oh, yeah. Like and Kelp's part of it <laughs> as well. Dr. Prue Francis, we yes. love her. Yeah. So um, that'll be great. Then uh, we're going to be speaking with Earthcare St Kilda's Richard Penzak and Glenn Adams. They're joining us in studio to talk about a very significant milestone in their efforts to restore Port Phillip's ecosystem by removing the introduced marine pests, the uh, the poster child of introduced marine pests, the Northern Pacific Sea Star. Indeed. We won't we won't do any more spoilers about what that announcement is going to be. They can they can do it. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to stick around. It's quite a milestone and it's only been in the last 12 months. Uh, so that'll be great to speak with them. And then to close the show, we're going to be catching up with Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy. Always great to catch up with Scott. And he's been busy over summer uh, getting out there in the water and planting lots of little baby golden kelp into Port Phillip Bay. And I'm assuming and I'm guessing beyond, but we can ask him about that. Uh, and bringing up to speed on how this... We caught up with him last year a couple of times throughout the year. Um, they had a bit of a milestone. It was after we'd finished for our summer break about um, about how many little baby kelp they'd planted already. So he can tell us about that one too. But, um, yeah, how it's all going and what their plans are for this year. Yeah, I can't wait to catch up with him. So, yeah, marine restoration, getting some things out of the water and putting some things back in. So... <laughs> And a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Oh, we are so sciencey. <laughs> <Yeah>. Stuff. <laughs> stuff is the operative word. Yeah. 
All right, let's take a look at today's weather farm. Well, here's your weather girl farm with the weather for Sunday 11th of February. Um, it's a top of 33 degrees today. Seriously, people, it is just so beautiful. So if you can get to the coast and get into the water or onto the water, do it. Uh, it is a little bit windy, though. So we've got northeast 30 to 45 k's an hour at the moment, but um, it's going to die down in the evening a little bit. Sunny, obviously, no rain. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen the weather report already, but tomorrow it will be hot. Temperatures will peak to a top of 35 tomorrow and then Tuesday as well. And then we'll probably find some blessed relief with a cool change on Tuesday and rain and possibly a thunderstorm. And then we are plummeting down back to 20 degrees on Wednesday and starting to build up again slowly from there. That's it. We've had our lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how relative temperatures are. Because remember a few years ago when we were, you know, consistently getting high 30s throughout January in particular, you'd get a day where it was 35 and you think, oh, we get a bit of respite today. But now <laughs> we've got this bill. Around. Oh, it's Melbourne scorcher. It's going to be 35. Yeah, it's that's all right. Um, so for the uh, tides today, Port Phillip heads high tide at 1.32 p.m. today and low tide at 7.30 p.m. tonight. And, uh, yeah, I checked out the EPA water quality report and it's looking really good all around everywhere in the bay. So it's safe to go in the water and enjoy yourself. Excellent. Thanks, Farm. No worries. Uh You've got some news, I believe. I do, yeah. Um, Pretty exciting stuff, actually. Um, A huge cold water coral reef has been found uh, off the coast of um, the southeast part of the United States um, called the Blake Plateau. Previously, it was thought that because they they known they've known that there was a reef there somewhere, but they they thought it was mostly just sediments and things like that, soft sediments. but now they've done a whole bunch of, um, you know, like a seismic and um, what you, would you call it? It's submersible di- submersible dyes, bleh, and multi-beam sonar mapping tricks. Okay. Yes, lots of them. And it turns out that they've just discovered the largest cold water coral reef in the world. <gasps> yeah. That we know of because 75% of the ocean floor is still unmapped, yes. right? So we have hunches of where things might be. Um, but they've actually properly done, you know, like 23 dives and 31 multi-beam sonar mapping surveys. And they've done, um, yeah, they covered basically 6,215 square kilometers. That's how big the reef is, oh. which is huge. It's like, yeah, it's it's massive. It's three times the size of Yellowstone National Park. Uh, and there's about 84,000 individual coral mounds that oh. they've discovered. And so these cold water corals, they're so deep, they're between 200 and 1,000 uh, meters deep. Um, and so they're all white because they don't, they don't have the zoosantelli, you right. know, the zoosantelli that, that um, coral reef corals have because there's no sunlight down there. It's all really dark. And so they get their food by having these little grabby hands, you know, the little tentacles that come out. And they basically grab plankton and things like that that... Um, that comes past, and so they've discovered that the um, the comparatively warm Florida current and Gulf Stream there, um, those are the Gulf Streams that provide the food for those cold water corals, and it kind of proves how important those Gulf Streams are because you know there is no sunlight, there are no algae that work with these corals, so they really depend on that, um, and of course they've. You know, they make these huge branching scaffolds, these reefs, and that provides habitat for all kinds of other mostly invertebrates, uh, of which probably a whole bunch have not been discovered yet. So it's pretty exciting stuff there. Absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating that they're white. 
Because we kind of we yeah. sort of come to think of white meaning bleached, meaning dead, but in yeah. this case they're not. Yeah, because it's the zoos and telly, yeah. the algae that uh, produce the sugars with you know through photosynthesis. Those are the the creatures that provide the corals colors. That's yes. you know the beautiful vibrant coral reefs that we all have in our minds when people say co- uh, corals. But um, yeah, obviously if they're not present, then corals themselves are just white. Wow. Yeah. So when they're bleached, um, that is literally just the coral you're seeing because the zoos and telly have left. Right. Um, yeah, so pretty amazing stuff. Um, I'm sure in the next few years we'll be hearing a lot more about, you know, new discoveries and things like that. Um, so this is all uh, done by uh, the NOAA Ocean Exploration Operations. You know, we, we, we know those guys very well. They do amazing science. Um, and this was an article via Science Alert. Excellent. Hmm. Can we put a link to that on yeah, our Facebook yeah, yeah. page, Pam? For sure. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, just had a quick message from Cliff, and then we're going to go to a track. Um, Cliff in Antarctica on oh, Davis hi, Station. Cliff. Hey, Cliff. Good morning, Triple R, he says. Ten knots, minus 5.9. Awesome. <laughs> that seems very warm. Minus 5.9. Yes. What's summer? In it's summer. Still peak of summer. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is too. So, but still. still. Oh, here we go. He sent a photo. Ten knots, nor'easterlies. Gusting to 12 knots. Yes, air temperature minus 5.9. Wind chill. Oh, this might make you feel better, Nerida. With a wind chill, it gets down to minus (laughs) 12.4. Oh, thank God. (laughs) That sounds more like it. (laughs) And it's 4.54 a.m. Such is your dedication, Cliff. Uh, (laughs) We are always very grateful. We will send some of this 33 degrees your way, Cliff. Yeah. Well, not too much because we don't want to melt Antarctica, but yeah. Nice sunny pick. Oh, actually, well, it's it's just a snapshot of the weather station report oh, but he okay. did send me a photo um during the week where it was midnight and um it's midnight sun yeah, yeah wow. that so they're, the case, they're not yeah. getting not getting much darkness yeah. down there at the moment all right lovely it is 11 minutes past nine and yes you are listening to radio marinara here on three triple r triple ah Uh, you are listening to Radio Marinara and the time is 9.15 and uh, also we just heard from Cliff again. He um, he sent us a beautiful photo which we might actually put on our Facebook page as well. 4.45am sunrise this morning and the sun set at 11 last night, farm. So um, 11pm 11, 11 sunset yeah, oh, and a 4.45. So, you know. <laughs> What's that? About six hours? <laughs> six hours of darkness. Oh, very good. All right. We're going to turn our attention to some art now. And uh, with our le- everlasting love for all things wet and salty, we do love some coastal and oceanic art here at Radio Marinara. We're very excited to see there's a new exhibition which opened yesterday called Currents, uh, using the curator's words. It's both an artistic endeavour and a call to action examining our reliance on and reverence of water, delving into the issues that surround water, scarcity, security and climate change. It explores tides, migration, ecosystems, climate change, saturation, sustenance and hydration, so many things. And uh, Currents puts that call out for collective conservation. To tell us all about Currents and how you can get along to check it out for yourself, it's with great pleasure. We welcome to Triple R CEO from Platform Arts, Ilona Russell. Ilona, good morning. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I mentioned you're from Platform Arts. Um, Before we get into the exhibition itself, can you tell us a little bit about Platform Arts and what you do? 
Yeah, sure. Um, Platform Arts is a contemporary art space located on Wadawurrung Country in Geelong. Uh, we present uh, experimental practice through exhibition, performance, publication and research. Um, we curate our program across a set of thematics every year um, around sort of ideas and questions that we consider to be quite urgent for our region or for sort of artists practising at this time. Um, and so Currents is the first thematic in a series of four throughout the year. Wow, fantastic. So how did you land on Currents? Why, why water theme? Uh, I think our unique position um, being based in Geelong, uh, we've got the bay on one side and then the surf coast on the other. Um, As part of the surf coast, it's also home to the Great Southern Reef. Uh, A few of the works in this show um, are looking at the Great Southern Reef, which is an incredible um, and massive sort of ecosystem that spans 8,000 kilometres from Brisbane to Western Australia. Um, So we thought, you know, water, considering through the context of climate change, of scarcity, of ourselves as bodies of water, just our deep and ongoing relationship to water, we thought it was a really kind of rich topic to explore um, and to start off our program this year. Yeah, it's so important to see the Great Southern Reef really um, expressed through art because it's it's really been the... You know, in a lot of ways, the the poor cousin in terms of publicity to the Great Barrier Reef and people are really only starting now to actually uh, recognise that there is this reef that sort of exists below the tropical uh, waterline and and is, is super significant in ecological terms. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And, um, Ilona, I was wondering also because, uh, as Bron said, you know, the the light has really been shining on this on the reef now, but it's it's done mostly through photography, and you know, the divers who've been out there really showcasing it through photography. And I was wondering, in in the exhibition that you're curating, what sort of media can we expect aside from um, photography that that explore this theme? Uh, yeah, the exhibition has a lot of different. Um, sort of presentation formats. We have um, some photographic works, but there's a lot of projection, video, sound works, sculptural elements. Um, We have a collective called Ocean Lab, which is a collective of artists, marine scientists and sound artists. Um, some of whom live and work on Wadawurrung Country, um, the surf coast in Geelong. And they've created a series of works, um, part of which have recorded uh, the underwater sounds using um, hydrophone speakers that are then played through um, parabolic speakers throughout the gallery space. Um, And they also have uh, microscopic um, documentation of seaweed that has been documented in what it's a, this amazing sort of new um, term that I've been lucky enough to learn through them, but of um, documenting the rack zone, which is that sort of moment um, of what is unearthed when high tide recedes. And it's this incredible um, sort of teeming ecology that is left sort of on on the shore, buried under seaweed. Um, of just this, yeah, incredible kind of life that we don't necessarily always consider, but if you kind of look deeply or, you know, spend a bit of time foraging in this space, um, you get to just see some incredible, um, yeah, sort of gifts, I guess, off the top from the ocean. So there's some uh, beautiful documentation of that um, really kind of close-up seaweed and oceanic life. 
Um, I read you've also prioritised a focus on amplifying First Nations voices. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the First Nations artists you've got featured in Currents? Yeah, we've got a uh, beautiful video and sound work from Wiradjuri artist Jazz Money, um, and it's a work that was originally commissioned by and made for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. Uh, so Jazz has created this really beautiful sort of site-responsive work um, that considers the kind of meeting point of fresh and salt water um, underneath um, or in circular key. So it's a work that really thinks about um, sort of deep time of place and invites the audience to just, I guess, wonder sort of about the way that story is held and told across place and across uh, generations. Uh, we also have a video work by Samoan Australian artist Angela Tiatia called Holding On. Um, and this is an incredible work that really looks at climate change, especially how climate change affects um, people living in Pacific Islands. Uh, and Angela Tiatia, over a period of 10, ten nights, um, would go to this, would lay down on a sort of concrete platform in the water as the tide was coming in, and she would sort of just hold place, I guess, for this durational work as the water would be pulling and lapping and kind of pushing her around, um, just attempting to, yeah, sort of maintain this position in a very sort of short-term sort of durational sense, but looking at a much longer-term um, effect of climate change. Is this the uh, image that is being used to promote the exhibition? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Incredible. Oh, yeah. I was wondering what that was about. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. We've we've uh, we've used that one um, for our promotion for our show today as well. So yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, any other artists or particular works that you're interested in um, in uh, able to let us know about, Alona? Just for our listeners who sort of maybe are interested, if they go along, what will they see when they go through the exhibition? Yeah, we've got. Um Another video work by a collective of South Sudanese artists. Um, it's a work called By, which means home in Dinka. And it's this um, beautiful kind of journey and consideration of home. So it looks as it looks at the experience of fleeing South Sudan, um, making sort of temporary homes within Kenyan refugee camps, and then establishing, you know, creating a new home in a country that is quite foreign um, to, to the artists in the work and it's looking at some longing for home, what creates or what makes a home um, and it's a beautiful film that has um, it has stories and songs of South Sudanese life um, that's a wonderful one to look at and there's also a really playful work um, by Benita Eli called uh, Murray River Punch um, and it was a work that was originally commissioned uh, and presented at George Payton Gallery in 1980 um, but Benita Eli was kind of foreshadowing I guess the um, sort of imminent degradation of the Murray-Darling Basin um, and doing a bit of a play on the uh, sort of popular cooking videos of the time. So she created this wonderful um, cooking demonstration where she creates this Murray River punch that is made up of all of the pollutants um, that was sort of existing in the Murray River at Ooh. that time. Um, and it has a recipe of the punch and beautiful documentation of that original performance work. Oh, I want to go and see that. That sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. Um, we're speaking with Alona Russell, who is uh, CEO of Platform Arts in Geelong and talking about Currents, an exhibition which opened yesterday, Ilona? 
Yeah, it opened yesterday and it runs until the 15th of March. Uh, and we'll also be having, um, as part of their public program for the exhibition, we'll have an artist talk with two of the artists in the exhibition, Georgia uh, Nowak and Lycan Kelp, um, on Friday the 23rd of February. And we're also partnering with Barwin Water um, to do a walk along one of Geelong's sort of earliest major reservoirs, the Upper Stony Creek Reservoir, um, and that will be presented with Barwin Water on Saturday the 24th of Feb. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I can highly recommend going and seeing Larkin Kelp speak. She was a guest on our program last year and, uh, yeah, what she, what she doesn't know... Um, about algae isn't worth knowing. So uh, Current's <laughs> exhibition, as we mentioned, it's opened. You can go down there today and check it out if you like until uh, Friday 15th of March. It's free to attend Galleries 1 and 2 Performance Space, 60 Little Mallop Street, Geelong. Alona, thanks so much for joining us this morning. been great speaking with you and good luck with the exhibition. Thanks so much for having me. And we've uh, put all the details on our Facebook page as well. If you click on that link, uh, click on that uh, spectacular photo that we were discussing earlier, it will take you through to a link and then all the details are there. So good luck. We'll catch you again. Thanks. Okay, bye for now. Elona Russell there. Uh, it is 9.25. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. We're going to hear a few station announcements and then we're going to talk a little bit about International Day of Girls and Women in Science. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Today is the International Day of Girls and Women in Science and the United Nations have put, uh, we've I've put a link to this on our Facebook page as well, a little profile of some of the women scientists on the forefront of climate action. Um, so it was fascinating reading through this. There's, they've got 12 women who are profiled, but there are three who I wanted to mention today. You can go and have a bit of a read for them for yourself. So these women are all on the IPCC. Their lead author of biodiversity uh, is um, a woman called Rita Adrian, and um, she looks after uh, biodiversity. And there's quotes from each of these women farm. So this one... Uh, Rita says climate warming and extreme droughts reinforce the fragmentation of rivers already brought about by dam building, increasing the threat for migrating fish species, loss of wetlands and ponds are major threats for freshwater species losses. So that's Rita Adrian. Um, then there is uh, Greta Peckle. She's the IPCC lead order for coral bleaching. Mm-hmm. So she does a lot of, um, these are all kind of, Super important women because they are on the world stage when it comes to advocacy for environmental, well, again, coming back to the, our, our show today, restoration. So this is really just about taking what we've got at the moment and looking to make improvements. Um, three marine heat waves on the Great Barrier Reef over the 2016 to 2020 time period, three in four years. Yeah, yeah. It's no, no great surprise there. Um, so this is from Greta. And uh, there's very high confidence these events have caused significant bleaching and loss, including consecutive occurrences of the most severe bleaching in record history, which is sobering words indeed. Um, and the third woman who I wanted to profile was uh, Marie Fanny Recolt. She's the IP- IPCC lead author for Oceans. Um, and if you do follow our Facebook page, um, it's her photo that you'll see. And I'll, I'll put a link to uh, to this particular um, summary from the UN on, our, on her photo. She's the lead author for Oceans, and uh, we're going to finish on a positive. The good news is there are actions we can take to help ecosystems adapt. And she says warming has greatly impacted life in European seas. We've already observed decreases in suitable habitat space, 
northward shifts in the distribution of marine species and these impacts are projected to become more severe with increasing global warming. The good news is there are actions we can take to help these ecosystems adapt. Measures such as habitat restoration and protection can increase the resilience of marine ecosystems and their services, which is really interesting, Farm, because we're seeing, of course, being in the southern hemisphere, we're seeing exactly the same trends starting to emerge, but in reverse. So we've got... um, northern species starting to make their journey south. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's going to be really interesting to see what or even Port Phillip Bay will look like in about, you know, five to ten years' time. Mm. I can imagine we're, we're going to discover all kinds of interesting critters we haven't seen before. No, exactly. Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled, divers. And um, if you are inspired by uh, a, a woman in science, especially ocean science, drop us a, drop us a text on the Triple R text line 0466 Definitely. We'd love to hear from you. We definitely would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, we've just been talking about Port Phillip Bay, so that is an absolute perfect opportunity for us to just take a little break via a track, and then we're going to be welcoming into the studio Glenn Adams and Richard Penzak from Earth Care St Kilda. They're going to be talking about a milestone that they've just reached in terms of uh, efforts and steps to uh, by a lot of people got to say this is a big collective volunteer effort to um, remove the introduced marine sea star uh, Asterius amurensis the northern pacific sea star but we'll talk with them in just a moment this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support triple r by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up the triple r website to find out how Uh, Since its arrival in Australia in the early 1990s, the Northern Pacific Sea Star has wreaked havoc on the natural marine ecosystems along the Great Southern Reef and particularly in Port Phillip Bay. Efforts to eradicate initially looked promising but then failed as what became the poster child of introduced marine pests proved too strong in its ability to reproduce, survive and dominate in local ecosystems. So it's now about damage control, largely by volunteer groups like Earthcare St Kilda, who this week chalked up an impressive impressive milestone in their hard work to get the Northern Pacific Sea Star out of Port Phillip Bay. To celebrate this milestone and talk about the wonderful work they consistently do, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome to Triple R from Earthcare St Kilda Marine Conservation Project Lead Richard Penzak and Earthcare Committee Member Glenn Adams. Richard, Glenn, good morning, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great for having you both here. Now, um, we didn't mention the actual milestone. We did that quite deliberately because we thought we'd give you the honours. Yeah, we didn't want to do a spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we did remove um, over one tonne of Northern Pacific Sea Stars from Port Phillip Bay, uh, principally from two sites, one in Port Melbourne and um, one in, in Brighton, but the Brighton area... Um, is around a four-kilometre stretch of coastline that we divide into different zones. So it's a small, it's a small area of Port Phillip Bay, and yet, you know, I think it demonstrates just how, you know, broad and this this issue is. Yeah, and prolific. How, how incredibly uh, well. Um, uh, it, how they have such an incredible ability to survive and reproduce, as I mentioned, and uh, yeah, incredible. Um, and that's a that's a one ton over what time period? Uh, uh, that's over the calendar year for two thousand and twenty three. Yeah. Wow! So um, 
We had four major events where we have volunteers, anywhere from eight to 12 volunteers. And then we also have, um, you know, smaller groups we pair up and do our divings on a, diving on an ad hoc basis. So we go snorkel, snorkeling in the intertidal zone and typically we find them in very shallow water. Yeah. And um, so... We'll get on to the volunteers in a minute because I'm assuming this is a really massive collective community effort because it would be quite an impressive thing for two people to pull out a ton of sea stars in a 12-month period. (laughs) Impossible. um, Yeah. Um, But I wanted to ask you both about the work that you do. Um, Richard, your new project lead for marine conservation, as I mentioned, at Earthcare. Yep. Yeah. So what does that job involve? What do you do as marine conservation lead? Well, um, I'm really very much finding my feet on that at the moment. Um, Look, I got approached to take on that role off the back of a um, white paper that I made for my master's, um, and I did a deep dive into Northern Pacific sea stars um, uh, with alignment to um, the Victorian biodiversity uh, policy. Um, so I guess I've, um, I've taken it on, and initially I'm just trying to make sure that all of our permits are in place and we're doing everything how they're meant to be done. Um, because the strongest message I'd like to put out is that um, identification of these animals and doing them under permit is absolutely imperative. Yeah, uh, and we should have mentioned that. Well, I should have mentioned that at the start of the program. This is all done under permit and is part of it's um, uh, an effort that you sort of do with the Victorian government. It would be. Is that how it works? It's through parks, I think. Do they issue the permits, Glenn? Uh, uh, fisheries, eh? Yes, uh, the Victorian Fisheries Authority, they, they issued the permits um, and they classify the, the northern Pacific sea star as a, a noxious aquatic species. So um, that permit is free um, and you just simply have to apply to the fisheries. Yeah, yeah. so even, even though they are noxious species, uh, it is still very important to have that permit. And, of course, for, for groups such as Earthcare and Kilda, um, you know, that you guys really train your volunteers as well. And everybody's becoming a marine expert in, in, these, uh, in these invasive species, which is quite exciting as well. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and while it's so... Um, while they are so damaging and, so, and such a noxious species and they'll, they will eat almost anything... Um, they can be misidentified, and I think that's the the real key. Is if you do see them in the wild, um, we'd like a, a a photograph taken, but not a physical removal. Yeah, yeah, it's really important to 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 note exactly that because you were talking about the the identification aspect of it, Richard. I think um, over the years we've found that people have confused the Northern Pacific sea star with um, with the eleven arm sea star. That seems to be the one that people typically think, oh. It looks like a crown of thorns. Therefore, oh, I guess that must be the um, introduced one, but it's not. It's um, it's a, a local species. It's quite the eleven arm sea star we're talking about. Is you you might have seen it if you've been out there, particularly on piers. It tends to get pulled up sometimes when people are fishing. But it's the big. Um, they, they're quite big. They can be up to what thirty centimeters. Oh, 50 centimeters in diameter. Yeah. some of them. Yeah, and there's eleven yeah. arms. They're real spiky. They do look a little <laughs> bit like crown of thorns, and so that's why people kind of think, oh, they must be the bad one. But um, but no the can you describe let's let's actually look to a sure. description can you well, describe the northern pacific sea star sure interestingly the 11 arms um are actually known to eat the northern pacific sea stars not at a very high rate but they have a uh, um an a- analogous animal where northern pacific sea stars are um native um called a sun star um 
and I hear the spider crab eat them as well, just out of interest. Um, so Northern Pacific Sea Star, they have up to five arms. They can be missing an arm. Um, and these five arms are attached to a central disc. Um, they can be varied in colour and size. Um, so they often have a lot of purple, but they're mostly orange as a base colour. Um, they can have slightly upturned arms at the end. Um, but there is a native star that looks very similar that's not an 11 arm. It's also a five arm star. Um, it doesn't usually have any purple on it. Right. Um, it, yeah, I, I think I Googled NPS um, for my master's assignment and I saw that star as the main picture yeah, in, right. in the results. <laughs> oh, not, it, not is it the granular sea star, the red one with the fat arms? No, it's more yellow than that. Oh, right. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I kind of want to Google it now. <laughs> so, so I'm really, um, I'm interested how, uh, I mean, because it's obviously a huge collective effort that you guys done. Um, so, so who is involved? Like how many volunteers go out there and what do you guys do? Do you go every week to collect these sea stars? Uh, no, we, we don't go every week. Um, the important thing is surveillance. And so the reports from the public, from swimmers, um, once they come in, then you know we'll go and check out that particular spot to see if there's a large horde. I don't know what you call the the mass aggregation, but <laughs> I, I call a it a horde. horde. I like it a, a horde, horde is of good, yeah. Northern Pacific sea stars. Yeah. And if we identify that spot, then we'll get a. a a group of around eight to twelve diver, uh, snorkelers together, and we'll go to that spot and remove them. Um, uh, on, on other occasions, uh, what we're doing, as I mentioned, we're just having pairs of snorkelers go out. Um, we know that there are some hot spots around the bay, and you know we'll go snorkeling. It's sort of like a snorkeling surveillance, yeah, to to see if we can find where that horde of Northern Pacific sea stars are. And, I mean, their distribution is a, is a mystery. They move um, in mysterious ways, I find, because in some, uh, on some occasions you can go to a spot and not find any, and a few weeks later there's a whole lot of them there. Yeah. So. What if it relates to food? Would, would they be going after food? So if they've suddenly appeared in an area, it's because maybe a whole bunch of... Because um, I know they particularly go after baby uh, juvenile mollusks. So mm-hmm. would that potentially be a link? Uh, I suspect so. Um, just just on that point, just um, when we talk about the Northern Pacific Sea Star as a voracious predator, and I heard Farm, I was at one of her education uh, sessions and she mentioned that, I was a little bit sceptical about that claim, but then I saw it with my own eyes. And what it looks like, um, just uh, I was coming back and it was in shallow sandy water, you see around fifty to a, uh, there were around fifty to hundred Northern Pacific sea stars with their bodies depressed into the sand, and this massive scattering of dead bivalves just all around them. So they also love um, blue mussels. Is they seem to have a, a preference for certain foods. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the important point here when we're talking about... Uh, I, I wanted to also talk about what happens to the sea stars once you actually take them out of the water because I'm sure there are people listening who are thinking, well, what do you do with them? You know, are they, do they go to a, another use, potentially something like fertiliser or, or whatever? But, um, yeah, uh, so let's... let's oh, farm? Oh, no, I was just um, saying that, um, like, once... Sorry... 
go ahead, Bron. <laughs> because <laughs> I have just looked at the time and we're going really fast. I have a million questions, but like you yeah. ask yours because we have to wrap up soon. Yeah, no worries. So I guess there's a couple of things here. One is about what actually, let's go to, straight to that question. What happens to them when, the, that's a ton of sea stars, there's a lot of sea stars. What yes. happens to them once so, they come out? So there are guidelines for um, the re- best practice sort of guidelines for the removal of the Northern Pacific sea star. And they're typically euthanised in fresh water for 15 minutes and then they're disposed of. Um, My understanding about um, using them as fertiliser has been a difficult issue. Yeah. Um, Do you um, you want to comment Yeah, so some people have said, like, oh, why don't we use them as fertiliser, like Charlie Carp, basically, right? But um, I know Neil, uh, our beekeeper, he's done a few tests years ago to see what the kind of nutrients were that you find in the sea stars. I think he sent some stuff off to the lab or something like that, but it, it wasn't worth actually doing it uh, but you can compost them in your home compost just don't forget to put some lime on it <laughs> otherwise you're going to get stanky <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent maybe that's a good note to end on actually I did I did want to ask you about your future work so and particular people are listening and they want to take part um, I know that there are we've had um, uh, a couple of volunteers who we wanted to give a shout out to Ivan Lee and Julian Stewart who I believe have done a lot of work with earth care over the years they they have and um you know um both of them have just made a huge contribution a valuable contribution to the removal of this invasive pest from port phillip bay oh shout out to them they've been amazing yeah Yeah. so what happens from here well uh, uh, if if people are interested in getting involved it's it's a great activity as a volunteer to be going down to the bay, snorkelling, you know, it, it draws your attention to all the, the great marine life that's in Port Phillip Bay and how important it is about protecting that. Um, if they, people want to get involved in that activity, um, they can contact us on marineconservation at earthcarestinkilda.org.au um, and then we can be in touch with, um, you know, the next sort of activities that we're yeah, brilliant. You know, undertaking. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, again, if you think you um, have seen an animal, please take a photo of it and send that to uh, that email address, mar- uh, marineconservation at earthcare.org.au. And, um, yeah, we'll be uh, really interested in uh, taking on some other conservation projects as well, um, yeah. looking at other um, invasive species um, and trying to get Port Phillip Bay as good as we can. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Let's stay on that restoration drive. That's right. And, yeah, good unit of always good to put a unit of measurement in with a photo too, like a 50-cent coin or whatever you've got on you that gives mm, you an yep. idea of how big the animal is because sometimes yeah. it's hard to work that out. Yeah. Um, just before we uh, head to a very quick couple of station announcements, um, our Triple R text line call-out farm has generated a text uh, from Lynn and Dave. This is really interesting. Spider crab sighting already. Ooh. I'm not going to say where. <laughs> they, <laughs> no, we don't do that they've anymore. They've let me know, but we, uh, we try and keep this secret because we, uh, we, we don't want to sort of promote um, location in case it generates a whole lot of well, crabbing activity. I know, but it's another good reason to get into the water today, people. Go I, and spot some spider crabs. I will say it's on the Mornington Peninsula, but that's not really giving too <laughs> no, much away. Too much, yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Lynn and Dave, for sending that one in. They've sent a photo in as well. Yeah, it looks like an early aggregation. It's pretty early for February. Amazing. All right, 9.50, you're listening to Radio Marinara. A couple of quick station announcements. Thank you so much for coming in, by the way. Oh, thank, thank you, you so for having us. Yeah, we've been yeah. speaking with Glenn Adams and Richard Penzak from Earth Care St Kilda. And in just a moment, Scott Breshkin from the Nature Conservancy bring us up to speed on Golden Kelp.
Triple R. Now, throughout last year, 2023, here on Radio Marinara, we brought you the news of a great new local ecology restoration project supported by the Nature Conservancy, the re-establishment of golden kelp ecosystems where the rock has been grazed bare by an overabundance of sea urchins. Well, project leader Scott Breshkin's been busy over the summer. He's been getting out there into the water and planting out golden kelp like it's going out of fashion. It's with great pleasure we welcome Scott back to Triple R to bring us up to speed on how the replanted kelp is going and plans for 2024 Welcome back, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great Always to, good to be back. Always good to have you with us. <laughs> now, uh, just to recap, and I did touch on it briefly, what has happened to the great kelp gardens of Port Phillip Bay? Yeah, so as you kind of mentioned, we have a, um, an overabundant species of native urchin in, in the bay that um, has over the last couple of decades been kind of chomping its way through a lot of our kelp forests and other seaweeds that occur in the bay. Um, so we're kind of on a mission to, to try and restore some of those kelp that's been lost. So what was there previously? Yeah, so we kind of had um, quite abundant uh, kelp forests, I guess, and that's kind of a colonia radiata or a golden golden kelp, um, but also mixed in with a whole bunch of other sort of seaweeds um, that grow in those sort of you know dense, small sort of canopy-like structures, which which provide really important kind of habitat, food, and shelter for a lot of our kind of marine critters in the bay. And is this when you say we used to? What timeline are we looking? Is this pre-colonization? Is this like what timeline are we looking at? Because yeah, more... now when I when I dive in the bay, it's mostly mud yeah. that I'm seeing, <laughs> right? So how do the how do the kelp forests uh, fit in there. Yeah, so it's probably m- most over the last few decades, so really probably since the 1980s is when the losses sort of started to, to really ramp up um, and particularly really in the last sort of 20 years, I suppose, since the, the sort of the millennial drought um, is really when we've seen a, a big change in those kind of kelp and, and seaweed ecosystems in the bay. But um, as you probably know, I mean over the last few hundred years, certainly the dynamics and and, and, and what the, the environment of the bay has changed a lot. So we've lost a lot of habitats that were there a few hundred years ago, but really the kelp kind of has persisted until, yeah, relatively recent history. Yeah. I always have these wild fantasies of going into a time machine and with my dive gear and then doing like diving Port Phillip Bay yeah. before colonization. But then I think I would be depressed forever after that, I think. So yeah. I'm really glad you're here doing this amazing <laughs> project. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I was, I was actually talking about um, shellfish restoration, which is another thing I'm involved in, as you know. But, um, you know, we're talking about shellfish in the bay. You know, that used to cover shellfish reefs more than, you know, 50% of Port Phillip Bay was covered in, covered in these incredible shellfish reefs. So you can only imagine you know what 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 it looked like back then it would have been incredible yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll get you in again to talk about yeah. the shellfish yeah. Re- <laughs> restoration project because i do want to get how had just generally how's that one going yeah really good we've kind of um in the process of wrapping up our big reef builder program where we were doing restoration at 13 sites around australia um so we're kind of just getting all the data and stuff in uh, in and together for that but um yeah over the last couple of years i guess in a really quick snapshot we've sort of restored about 62 hectares or sort of 30 mcgs worth of shellfish reefs wow. around australia um and generally they're doing really well there's obviously been challenges with you know lots of different challenges in different locations but i've actually just been in gippsland um, doing some monitoring on shellfish reefs this last week so i did a lot of diving down there um, and yeah that was great to check in on those we've had some really great muscle growth and they're kind of getting to maturity some of those muscles um, but yeah a whole bunch of other challenges that we kind of come across as, as you do this sort of stuff so we're dealing with um, some sand migration issues there and some burial of the rock that we've put in but what's what's remaining there is really flourishing it's great to see the kind of the fish life and everything that's kind of coming back with um, with those shellfish oh, Excellent. Yeah, 30 MCGs you've yeah, got me the, there. So. The Melbourne metric. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to book you in very shortly for next time to come in. We'll talk about that one. Let's let's just keep talking about golden kelp. Now, we've just been talking milestones with Earthcare St Kilda about their milestone. And um, you notched up a milestone of your own. It was announced on the 19th of December, and we'd already finished for the year, um, about uh, a very large number of baby kelp 
that were replanted. Tell yes. us about that. So over the course of a few months last year, um, we put about we estimate about a hundred thousand um, little kelplings or baby kelp back into to Port Phillip Bay. Um, so that hundred thousand, yeah, by that, hand, one by one. <laughs> yeah, personally did most of that myself, but uh, <laughs> no, with with help from a lot of um, a lot of people on the project. But um, yeah, so we're kind of focusing at the moment on two two areas. So we've got Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary on the eastern side of the bay and Jawbone in the north. Um, so we've kind of been yeah trialing different techniques. So using kelp um, grown by by the uh, the team at Deakin uh, down in Queenscliff on on twine or sort of um, yeah well, essentially just cotton twine. We can grow baby kelps on those, and then we can go down and attach those to the reef, uh, and also growing um, kelp on little bits of gravel or rocks that we can also again go and go down and deploy. So trying to figure out the best method, the best time, the best sort of um, way to sort of try and bring this kelp back. But um, yeah, what was exciting is we actually put uh, we put our first lot back in the water in July last year, um, and very quickly after that, unfortunately we had this kind of big um, epiphytic growth or sort of fouling event that occurred so a lot of our twine and things that we'd put out actually got covered or smothered in in, in, in algae um, which was unfortunate and we sort of uh, didn't think we'd had any success and we sort of left that kelp there for, for about six months and we went back just before putting some more out in December last year and we actually found that we'd had a bunch of kelp surviving and had, had grown so we, that was a really um, good good win for us um, but also it just yeah, kind of shows you that sometimes you just leave these things to do that you know to do their thing and you come back and hey it's surviving so yeah. that was um, so, so super were those, encouraging. Were those native algae? So, so kelp would have kind of been used to having to grow real quick when they're small, right? Because yeah. that would happen in, in natural circumstances too. Yeah, and that's kind of about trying to figure out the best timing, I guess, to put the kelp in and the best size to put them in so that they can kind of outcompete all those sort of those natural sort of um, uh, dynamics they have to compete with in the bay. But um, yeah, some of those kelp now, they're about 20 centimetre in size, um, looking really good. We put a bunch more out in, in December, as you said, and they're, they're looking really great as well. So um, yeah, it's good to see early success. We're still kind of doing stuff at a small scale, but we'll take any wins we can in the kind of <laughs> Restoration games. You're like, you're like the Costa of the Bay. It's like <laughs> gardening Australia, gardening Port Phillip Bay, planting out the kelps. Spot on, farm. Yeah. Sorry, Scott, you're left with that tag now. You are the, no, the no, Costa of Port Phillip Bay. No, you no, don't no, have no. the wild eyes yet, but I can see it coming. I can see it coming. Next hair, year, yeah. when these kelps are starting to grow, you'll be there. Yeah. Eventually, it'll get to be Scott of Port Phillip yeah. Bay. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's fantastic. Um, thanks for coming in, Scott, and we'll get another time sorted out straight away sure. yep. um, want to talk about the shellfish restoration work and also more broadly what your plans are for this year including yep. the kelp the, the shellfish the oyster reef there's so much great work going on so we'll explore that in more detail next that, time that'd be great um, in the meantime if you want to find out more about the golden kelp restoration work we put a link to that on our Facebook page uh, you can just click on that photo of you holding up your jar with 100,000 baby kelps <laughs> in it <laughs> fantastic that brings us to the end of our program today um, thank you Farm Thanks. That went real quick. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.